Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. It will be a warm welcome today, uh, since we're in the Kelvin Suite. So if you normally don't take off your coat, you might want to think about that uh, in the course of the service. We don't want anybody fainting. Um, as usual, though... Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken up his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Our opening hymn of praise this morning is one that I believe was a, a favourite of Kerr Spears, and it's one that I have known since childhood. And on such a glorious day, what else could we sing other than When Morning Gilds the Skies? fashion after I have led us in a relatively short prayer, we are invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer in our own preferred versions, our own heart languages. So let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this new day, for the new week that lies open before us and all the opportunities we will have to love and to be loved. Thank you for this faith community in which we are welcomed and accepted and where we can learn what it means to be loved by you. Thank you for those who, through the years, in this place and in other places, have showed us love, modelled compassion and treated us kindly. Thank you for the great mystery of the incarnation, execution and resurrection of Jesus the Christ that liberates us from sinfulness and shame. Thank you that as we gather, as we worship, as we pray, 
And as we listen for your voice, your spirit is active, gentle as a dove, quieter than a whisper, closer than our breathing. Thank you for your blessings to us and for your trustworthy promises. So hear us as we join our voices with those of countless others saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. <coughs> you a story this morning. I'm going to read you a book called Have You Filled a Bucket Today? Does anybody know this story? Anybody come across it before? Yes. One person knows it, so that's great. Um, I think it's a great story. I have to confess, I only came across it um, in the last couple of weeks. I think I might sit down if that's all right. I'll pretend I'm a granny. I'll never be a granny, but I can pretend, can't I? And if anybody is smaller and wants to come and look at the pictures, then please feel free to come a bit closer. <coughs> All day long, everyone in the whole wide world walks around carrying an invisible bucket. You can't see it, but it's there. You have a bucket. Every member of your family has a bucket. Your grandparents, your friends, and your neighbours all have buckets. Everyone carries an invisible bucket. Your bucket has one purpose only. The purpose is to hold your good thoughts and good feelings about yourself. If you feel happy, sorry, sorry you feel good and happy, Again, you feel happy and good when your bucket is full. You feel sad and lonely when your bucket is empty. <coughs> Other people feel the same way too. They're happy when their buckets are full and they're sad when their buckets are empty. It's great to have a full bucket and this is how it works. Other people can fill your bucket 
and you can fill theirs. You can fill your own bucket too. So how do you fill a bucket? You fill a bucket when you show love to someone, when you say or do something kind, or even when you give someone a smile. Come on in. Just in time for story. So when you smile, that's being a bucket filler. Esther, do you want to come and see the picture so you can see the pictures? That's it, good girl. A bucket filler is a loving, caring person who says and does nice things to make others feel special. When you treat others with kindness and respect, you fill their bucket. But you can also dip into a bucket and take out some good feelings. You dip into a bucket when you make fun of someone, when you say or do mean things, or when you ignore someone. That is bucket dipping. Bullying is bucket dipping. When you hurt others, you dip into their bucket. You dip into your own bucket too. Many people who dip have an empty bucket. They may think they can fill their own bucket by dipping into somebody else's, but it doesn't work. You never fill your own bucket when you dip into somebody else's. But guess what? When you fill someone else's bucket, you fill your own bucket too. When you feel, you feel good, when you help others to feel good. Can you see a smile? Sister. Oh, she's got a nice look. That's a nice smile. See, smiley bucket. So I've had a bit of a fill to my bucket because Esther's just given me a lovely smile. Thank you. All day long, we are either filling up or dipping into each other's buckets by what we say and what we do. Try to fill a bucket and see what happens. You love your mum and dad, so why not tell them you love them? You can even tell them why. Your caring words will fill their buckets with joy. Watch for smiles to light up their faces. You will feel like smiling too. A smile is a good clue that you filled a bucket. If you practice, you'll become a great bucket filler. Just remember, everyone carries an invisible bucket and think of what you can say or do to fill it. Here are some ideas for you to try. Hi, David. see the pictures yeah because that's great fantastic yeah that's good so here are some ideas to try to fill in in to help fill up people's buckets you could smile or say hi to a bus driver he has a bucket too you could invite the new kid at school to play with you she has a bucket too or he you could write a thank you note to your teacher. You could tell your grandpa that you like spending time with him. There are many, many ways to fill a bucket. Bucket filling is fun and easy to do. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't cost any money and it doesn't take much time. And remember, when you fill up somebody else's bucket, you fill your own too. When you are a bucket filler, you make your home, your school and your neighbourhood better places for everybody. Bucket filling makes everyone feel good. So, it's a bit of a moral story, this one. <laughs> Why not decide to be a bucket filler today and every day? Just start each day by saying to yourself, I'm going to do something to fill someone's bucket today. You don't have to do that, but you get the idea. And at the end of the day, you could ask yourself, did I fill 
a bucket today? Yes, I did. That's a bucket filler too. And that, that person, that bucket filler, is you. And you. And you. And you. And you. So we're going to sing one of my favourite daft songs now <laughs> that reminds us that God loves us all. God loves everybody just as they are. And I think God wants to fill our happiness buckets, really, as we sing this song together. Thanks, Leo. ago I read a book called Atonement for a Sinless Society by somebody called Alan Mann and this book is based on the idea that in contemporary Western society the word sin isn't particularly helpful anymore and actually a more helpful word to work with is shame and he argues that majority of people or many people are affected by what he calls chronic shame, shame that goes on and on. And actually what we need to be saved from, liberated from, freed from, is not doing bad things, but that sense of shame. And it's that that kind of has prompted this short series we've done over the last few weeks, thinking about shame and honour or indebtedness. This morning, I'm going to be using um, some words. And when I was at school back in the day, they always used to say, first define your terms. If you're going to use a word, say what you mean by it. And I have my notes that I have written. But as I mentioned to a few people, when I was in the shower this morning, a better idea came into my head. So it was too late to write anything new, but we're going to get what I've written in a slightly different order than I wrote it. What I would want to say right at the start, though, is I will be using one or two examples as I make these definitions. And I want to make it very clear that either these are experiences I've had in other contexts in other places a long time ago, or that they are 
examples I use with explicit advance permission of the people who have experienced them. So please don't sit there thinking, oh, I hope she's not going to mention when, because she isn't. She's forgotten about that. So I'm going to start with sin, because that's the word that is often used in churches. It's used so often that we hardly ever think about it. And usually we understand sin as doing wrong at least doing wrong as defined by the tradition of which we are part. And as I was thinking this morning, I was reminded of the Roman Catholic tradition that has venial sins and mortal sins, so sins that can be forgiven and sins that can't be forgiven. I'm not even going to begin to go down that route. What I want to do is to take us back to the Greek word that we translate as sin, and which actually has its origins in archery. And the word amatia, which we translate as sin, came from the idea that you, you look at the target, you draw back your bow, you release your arrow, but it doesn't hit the target. It falls short or goes wide. And I'd like us to just keep that at the back of our minds because we will come back to the concept of sin as doing wrong things, but also that slightly kinder one. But actually, it's not necessarily willful. It's not necessarily deliberate. We do our best, but we don't quite achieve the goal. So sin is a word we use a lot in churches. And then comes guilt. I used to hear a lot about Catholic guilt. But you know what? Proddy guilt is every bit as strong and can be damaging to people. But there is, I think, a kind of healthy guilt. Something that arises when we know that we have done wrong or we have failed to achieve that we intended to do and we want to do something about it. Healthy guilt is linked with our conscience, the part of our, our being that helps us to distinguish between right and wrong. Toxic guilt, the sort of internalising of guilt, maybe has the potential to lead to shame. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So sin, falling short. Guilt, in a healthy sense, realising we've done something that we need to put right or learn from. I want to use another, two other words before we move on to look at shame very briefly. And the next word is embarrassment. Have you ever felt embarrassed, face goes red, tingly armpits, throat goes dry? Maybe it's something different for you, but those are typical feelings. Embarrassment would be if you broke wind in church or in polite society, company. You might be embarrassed because you forgot somebody's name or you forgot to send them a birthday card. Embarrassment is a kind of feeling awkward usually it doesn't last very long and usually we forget about it pretty quickly. Then there is humiliation and humiliation is a bit different from embarrassment though embarrassment may be partly what we feel if somebody humiliates us. It's done to another with the intention of making them feel small stupid or inadequate. And I'm going to use an example here from my own experience when I was nine years old. We moved house and I went from a small village school that was very, um, very nice place to be, a very affirming place to be, to a very large junior school, three form entry and a teacher who was pretty scary. I was a very shy child, a very timid child and I was very softly spoken. In fact, I often didn't speak above a whisper. One day, I was queuing up to get my work marked, and I honestly cannot remember what it was I'd done wrong. But uncharacteristically, I had made an arithmetic error. I was really good at arithmetic. I always got 10 out of 10 or 20 out of 20, but I got this one wrong. So let's just say, for sake of argument, that I had written down 27 times 3 equals 83. The teacher said... What's the correct answer? I went red. I felt hot. 
I was embarrassed. 81, I whispered. Straight away, without even pausing, she sent me to the back of the room, behind everybody, and called out to me, what did you put down? What was the, answer, the question? All right, um, 27 times 3 equals 81. And what should it have been? Sorry, it equals 83, sorry. And what should it have been? And I said, 81. Now, I had to dig quite deep to find that experience. It was a long, long time ago. But that was an experience of humiliation, of somebody deliberately trying to make another person feel small or inadequate, dipping into the bucket, taking out the happiness. So we all sometimes feel embarrassed, and we may all have experiences of being humiliated. One more word that I just want to have a quick think about, and that is shame. Boy, oh boy, does that turn out to be a complicated word. I've read a number of scholars over the last few weeks, and they all disagree about what shame actually means. So having done some reading, I have settled on what the writer Brené Brown thinks. Um, I like her, her approach to it, because she just says shame is bad. Shame is negative. Shame is unhealthy. Shame is simply a sense that I am bad or I am worthless. I'm not good enough. It's about who I am. It's not about what I do. It's not about the fact that I got the answer wrong. It's not about the fact that I made a mistake. It's that I am not a good enough person. I'm no good. And things that cause shame or trigger shame can be very complicated, but they cut right to the heart of who we are. So if we go back to where we started and the idea of sin, and sin could be doing wrong, I did bad, I made a mistake. Shame is I am bad, I am not good. And that is what Alan Mann says we need to be saved from. That's what atonement for a sinless society is about. And now, there is no such thing as a perfect definition of anything. Humiliation, guilt, sin, embarrassment, they can all contribute to shame, to feeling ashamed, especially if we are a person who, for whatever reason, is very susceptible to shame. Other factors that can, can contribute can be poverty. I, I'm not good enough because I have no money. Our race, our gender identity, our health, our social status... Indeed, anything that sets us apart, that makes us feel we are different, that makes us feel we are excluded from normal, whatever that is, can make us experience shame. It is certainly true to say that some people are more shame resilient than others. Some people will shrug something off that I will tend to internalise. We are all different. I did have an example of shame, and I, I don't have it in this one. It's okay. I'm saving that for later, I think. But um, shame is, is something that, that is not good. And being aware of shame helps us to seek f freedom from it. So with all of that in mind, we're going to listen now to some words from Scripture. Thanks, Grace. Psalm 139 O Lord, you have searched me and known me for it was you who formed my inward parts you knit me together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works that I know very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them has yet existed. And then from John's Gospel, chapter 8. <clears throat> Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. passage from John's Gospel must surely be one of the best loved and most preached upon passages in the whole of the Bible. A story of sin, shame, guilt, humiliation and embarrassment, plus probably a whole lot more. But above all, it is a story of liberation, a story of being set free. The woman has been caught in the very act of adultery, I'll leave that to your imaginations, and therefore, under Jewish law, she is guilty of sin. And the, the um, punishment for the sin she has committed is to be put to death by stoning. However, they can't do that under Roman law, but hey-ho. The scribes and the Pharisees see an opportunity to catch Jesus out. They want to force him to say where he stands on this issue. And what they do is to humiliate the woman in this, this picture that I found online. She is dragged here. She has a, um, a rope around her neck. She's barely closed. She's dragged out into the public square. The bystanders must be pretty embarrassed when they see what's going on here. And the intention, above all, is to shame Jesus, who I think is this character here finger in the ground, mirroring the, po the posture of the woman. It's a story in which every single person has a, their own story, which is exposed to the gaze of God, who, the psalmist tells us, searches and knows them. They might be able to fool the other people standing around them, they might be able to hide from themselves, deny the truth. But they can't hide from God. And I wonder who it is that we might identify with if we, as we hear this story, if we placed ourselves into that picture or any other picture of this story. Do we identify with the woman? There is no doubt that she has failed morally. She has made bad choices. That is evident. I wonder how she feels, though. Embarrassed because she has been caught out? Well, I would imagine so. 
humiliated because she has been forcefully dragged into the public square and her crime announced to everybody. Surely that is humiliation. Guilt because she knows that she's done wrong. Well, I would imagine so, and I would imagine she would love to be able to put it right. Shame, because actually she is bad. She is worthless. An adulterer, a wicked woman, who deserves nothing better than to die. To me, that seems pretty inevitable, given the story. But actually, do you know what? We know nothing about her. We don't know her story. We don't know what her life experiences were. We don't know what her self-esteem was like before any of this, let alone how it is she ended up in bed with some bloke who wasn't her husband. One of the uh, commentaries I looked at this week suggested perhaps it was a Pharisee or a priest, and that's why he never got dragged out, protecting the powerful, shaming the vulnerable. Maybe she is any one of us here today. Maybe she is every one of us. We all have our own hidden stories. And maybe we are afraid that if we were found out, it wouldn't be very nice. Maybe she's me. Maybe she's you. Or do we perhaps see ourselves among the scribes and the Pharisees these men at the bottom with their rather large rocks behind their backs. There is no doubt what their intent is, so how do they feel? How does the oldest one feel, the one who leaves first? Is there a growing disquiet, a foot-shuffling embarrassment as he realises what he's got himself caught up in? That was not really his intention. Does he sense the humiliation of the woman, the unease or disquiet of the crowd? Does he start to experience guilt, to realise that actually in some way what he has done is wrong, that, that his zeal for the law means that he has fallen short of its intent, he has missed the mark in seeking to do that which God requires? Does his face go red? Do his armpits tingle and his mouth dry as he realises his own shame? Does he wish he could unsay or undo what he has said and done? Does he regret that he has been part of shaming another human being? Perhaps he is any one of us, every one of us. Perhaps he's me. Perhaps he's you. Or is it the crowd that we identify with? The onlookers who are watching and listening but do not seem actually to act. What thoughts rush through their heads as they watch events unfold? What feelings do they experience physical feelings, emotional feelings? And, and do this change as events unfold? From shock to see this thing happen, to abhorrence to realise what's going on, to judgement, she must be bad, to pity. From superiority, well, we're okay, to self-awareness, actually, do you know what? That could be me. From exclusion, what nothing to do with this, to inclusion. How do embarrassment or humiliation, guilt, sin or shame play out in their stories? And us as observers in our stories. The story ends with the two intended victims left alone. Jesus stands up, level with the woman, looks her in the eye and says, go and sin no more. 
not just a moral command, not to repeat her misdemeanour, as I want to suggest, but actually liberation, freedom from the shame that denies her humanity. I like to think that what he actually said was a bit more like this. Do you know what? You are worth so much more than this. You may have done wrong, and yep, there are things you need to change. You may have fallen short, you may have messed up, but that does not define you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the God who knows you inside out, back to front and upside down. And because of that, go and live your life freely, wholly, healthily, as a beloved child of God. What Jesus did was he named the reality and he set her free. <coughs> there is power in naming. There is also the potential for liberation, for freeing. We began our exploration by noting that words matter, that language matters. And I think one of the things that really struck me when I was reading about shame was how many of the examples that were used were things that people had said or had not said to others or to them. The language of shame is really pernicious. It creeps into everyday speech without us even noticing. That quick put down or the self-deprecating comment can, if repeated often enough, erode self-worth and trigger or deeper a sense of shame, of being bad, of being not good enough, of being unworthy, of being unlovable. I did have an example of shame language that I was going to use earlier and missed, but I'm going to use it for you now. And this is used with the permission of the person to whom it was spoken. Somebody who is a member of our church was called in by their line manager at work and these words were said to them. I am so disappointed in you and it's only Tuesday. Words that cut deep into the heart of that person and that they still recall to this day. You are a disappointment. You are inadequate. You are bad. It was about them as a person, not about what was happening in their work. Way, way back, when I was in industry, we used to go off on all these exciting management courses. They weren't very exciting, really, but they were useful. And we were taught very clearly that language matters. And how to express criticism in a non-blaming way. Now, I'm not using this as an example against anybody or against anything. It's just an example of how language can be used. So we should recognise and name our own feelings. So it's okay to say, I am disappointed. That's fine. And then we should say what it is that has disappointed us. Because the work I asked you to do wasn't completed or because the work wasn't completed, even take the you out of it altogether. And then, ideally, using the language of we and us to add a, rem a remedy, a therefore. I am disappointed, I am so disappointed you, and it's only Tuesday, is deeply, deeply shaming. I'm disappointed that the work wasn't completed and so this is what we're going to do about it, is not shaming. It recognises that something needs to be addressed, but it finds a way not to demean the person and to find a way forward. It's something I try to do, but I know I don't always get it right. It's a work in progress, it always will be. If I'm tired or if I'm angry, I can kind of slip into passive-aggressive mode and I, I say things that are shaming and then I feel guilty and then I, I feel embarrassed and, and then I feel ashamed. Some of you who read my blog are aware that over the summer I actually chose to go and do some CBP, saw a counsellor, because actually 
my mum's death triggered a lot of issues for me around shame and worthlessness from things way, way back in history. But one of the most useful things that the counsellor I saw got me to do was to write down, or to start a positivity journal, which is a very grand title, where I record not things that have happened to me that are good or not things that I've done well particularly, <coughs> but that I am good. I am worthy. I did that well. I am loved. Because words matter. The way we speak to ourselves and the way we speak of ourselves matter. Now, I know some of you have spent nine years telling me to stop apologising and da-di-da-di-da. <laughs> and I do try, and I know I don't always get it right, but I stick at it and I hope you all stick at it as well. Maybe some people here are very shame resilient. You can, you can hear somebody say something shaming and you can just shrug it off. That's great. If that's you, fantastic. I suspect many, probably most of us, aren't. We go away home and go, oh, no, I did that wrong, and they won't like me, and if they knew this. Maybe there are people who actually are a bit full of their own importance. But I suspect if that's true, it's only occasionally and, and not most people. I think most people just need encouragement and affirmation to be liberated from the shame that we have, however small, however great. And one of the things that I think is helpful and one of the things I do is to use a little mantra. And on your chair, when you came in, you should have had a little business card-sized piece of paper. And on it, it says, quite simply, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I want you to take that home with you and I want you to put it in your purse or your wallet or your diary or stick it on the fridge or the pin board, wherever it is, so that you can remind yourself when you feel really stupid because you did something that didn't quite go to plan or you messed up or, or somebody said something that hurt you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But we're actually going to do it. We're going to use it as a mantra. And we're going to use it in three forms. So I'm going to say something, and then you're going to join in and say it to me. And, we're, and then I'll, I'll change it up a little bit. So first of all, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Say it as if you believe it. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now look at somebody near you and say to them, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Somebody else? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And one more. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then thinking of the people we meet each day. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you. Take this moment, sign and space. Take my friends around. Here among us, make a place where your love is found.
session this morning were written by Graham Little, who unfortunately is unwell and not able to be here. So let us pray. Gracious God, we admit to our frustration at the unpredictability of much of the world's politics today and to our fear that many well-publicised needy causes are being neglected because, in our confusion, we waste so much time and effort arguing about matters of national self-interest or failing to admit unpalatable truths from the past. We see devastation and bloodshed in countries like Syria, sporadic outbursts between Gaza and Israel, heart-rending need for peace in Yemen and we avoid action because of our own country's economic priorities or historical alliances without considering our moral duty to others. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to stimulate action to right these wrongs. We pray too for the people of California distraught by fires ravaging their land. Lord, we have much to learn from the experience of pastors in France, including our own mission link, Christine Kling. They point to the value of prayer for the needs of our own congregations, for the need to trust inquirers in a society with many bewilders individuals seeking a truth to live by and to identify and to the importance of identifying the particular needs of new Christians and helping them along the way. The Baptist Union of Great Britain gives thanks for the richness of its international communities as we have reason to do here at Hillhead. And the Baptist Union of Scotland asks us to pray for churches at Shots, Leith, and Southside Christian Fellowship in air. Within our own church family, we are glad that Irene Allen has been able to return from hospital to her care home, and we give thanks specifically for the Edwards family and their long contribution to our church. For Graham's good recovery from serious illness a few years ago, for Elaine's devoted service to Sunday school, and the satisfaction she finds in her work alongside people facing up to their poverty. That the girls are progressing well at school, Freya with exams soon, and Sarah facing up cheerfully to any frustration arising from being a younger sister. We thank you too for those who over many years have led our efforts to return to a new building as soon as all the complications of this task are dealt with. We thank you for those who regularly give a hand with the preparation for clearing up from our Sunday services. We pray for members dealing with problems of old age or infirmity. And in a moment's silence, we remember before you individuals of whose special anxieties or needs we are aware. We ask all these prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
with so many good gifts. Help us to use this money wisely, to bring freedom and liberation to any who live in fear or sadness, loneliness or exclusion, as we share with them the good news of the Christ who sets them free. Amen. Our closing hymn, God of Freedom, God of Justice. made. Jesus says to us, go and live the life for which you were created, free from shame, guilt, humiliation, embarrassment, and free from the snare of sinfulness, knowing that I am with you always to the very end of the age. <coughs>